Well, hello everyone, uh, we are catching up on Sunday here. The talk didn't record properly, so I'm doing it through the week. So you've got an exclusive studio version version to listen to. We've been doing our series uh, through Joseph. We've been looking at the, the book of Genesis and we're going to be reading from Genesis 42, continuing the story of Joseph. And we have Joseph left to die by his brothers uh, who are fueled by jealousy and eventually sold into slavery. He finds God's protection and God's favour in the midst of this. He finds himself then imprisoned wrongly, but in the midst of the valley after valley, the, the rough seasons, he consistently keeps his head up. He keeps his hands open and he keeps his heart steady. We looked at that last week. There's a remarkable, or a couple of weeks ago, there's a remarkable resilience in the midst of his hardships. There's, he's still uh, using his gifts. He's still saying yes. He's still uh, trusting. Pete spoke last week on Genesis 41 on God's view from the top. And uh, Pete was reiterating that God is still with us. And he's still invested in us. He, he never wavers. He knows us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So Joseph finding favour. He's found favour in uh, keeping his head up and keeping his hands open and his heart steady. He's found favour and the Spirit of God is moving in and through him. He's interpreting dreams for Pharaoh. And then it transpires he finds himself in charge of Egypt. I mean, wow, what a, a journey, what a roller coaster. And then following that appointment, a famine has hit. After years of plenty, years of uh, no lack, there's a famine that's hit in the land. And Egypt has actually become the storehouse for the world to come and find help. And Joseph just so happens to be the man in charge with many coming to him for aid, for grain, for sustenance. So we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 42. We're going to read 1 to 8. We're going to jump about a couple of verses because we've got most of the chapter here to look at, but I'm not going to bore you by reading the whole chapter. So let's start in Genesis 42 at verse 1. Then Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt. He said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they did not recognise him. And Joseph accuses them of being spies and then he instructs them to bring Benjamin, the youngest, back. So... Jacob, his father, has, has kept Benjamin back out of fear. Uh, but Joseph is saying, no, no, no. I want Joseph, I want Benjamin here as well. We're going to pick up in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you may not die. This they proceeded to do. 
They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. Speaking about Joseph here, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realise that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Then we're going to jump to verse 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to him. They said, the man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us. And he treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord of the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was the pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Amen. That's the word of the Lord uh, is given to us because God loves us. And I pray that uh, he speaks as we unpack a couple of things from it. I want to start uh, following on reading God's word by telling you the story of a five-year-old called Johnny. He was in the kitchen when his mum made supper and she asked him to go into the pantry and get a can of tomato soup, but he didn't want to go in alone. He said, it's dark in there and I'm scared. She asked again and he finally persisted. Uh, He said, okay. She said, it's okay, Jesus will be in there with you. So Johnny walked hesitantly to the door and he slowly opened it. He peeked inside, he saw it was dark and he started to leave and thought, no, no, I'm not doing this. Then it came to him, an idea, and he shouted into the pantry, Jesus, if you are there, would you hand me that can of tomato soup? If you have kids, you will know and live through these seasons of fear. The dark's a big thing to navigate for our little ones, perhaps maybe for some of us who are listening. For me, I remember being in uh, being around 10 or 11 years old in our church manse. I was the son of a Baptist minister uh, and used to always get that song, the only one who could ever save me was the son of a preacher man, every time by my friends as I was walking to school. But anyway, we were in this church manse and I had the downstairs bedroom it was the only bedroom downstairs in this uh, quite a big house. And there was a huge bay window. had my WWF posters and my wee snooker table. It was a great room. It was a great room. And we lived in an area that had its challenges. There was pockets of deprivation. It was a lively area. Uh, but the church that my dad led seen lots come to Jesus. There was loads of cool stories. The place that we lived in, this church manse, was about eight doors down from a nightclub, a kind of bar nightclub. And I remember when I was about 10 or 11 years old, waking up one morning and there was a big boulder at the bottom of my bed and glass everywhere. And I just screamed for my mum and dad. Someone had lobbed it through my window in a drunken walk home, perhaps. Now, I don't know, maybe they weren't a fan of the Ultimate Warrior or Hulk Hogan. But from that moment, 
and my wee ten-year-old uh, heart and mind fear got a hold. I couldn't sleep. I would look out of uh, my window every night before the curtains would close to the big hill. There's a big hill directly across, straight ahead, and there's a path coming down. And I'd be filled with anxiety if I saw anyone walking down. I'd get worried every weekend as the nightclub filled with people getting drunk and stumbling past our house. I would shout my parents at every and any noise at all times in the night. And I'd like to share a really super spiritual solution to this, but my answer was our black Labrador called Ben. He would lie at the bottom of my bed and he would lie over the bottom of my legs and I knew it would be okay. I mean, he was the slobberiest, softest dog ever, but he had my back and that's all I needed. And my window thankfully stayed intact until we moved out of that house when I was at uni around 19 years old. I've called this talk Fear Be Gone. It's my prayer that fear be gone. Fear is a thief. Fear is a liar. Fear is a slave merchant. Fear is a crippler. Fear can stop us in our tracks. Fear can catch us off guard. Fear can dominate and dictate. It can paralyze us. It can change the course of our lives. Fear can silence. It can grab a hold and not let go. Fear has had too loud a voice for too long. And there's a moment in listening to this talk and sharing this talk to disrupt fear's momentum and dominion that it's held. Living with fear is not to be the end of this story. Fear is not our native air. Someone said this, I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not fear. Fear is not my native land. Faith is I'm so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air. But in faith and confidence, I breathe freely. These are my native air. If we know and love Jesus, I want to declare that fear be gone in his name. It has no place anymore. Take this talk as a reminder. Take this talk as a recommissioning into faith-filled freedom living, a release of whatever the enemy has bound you by, a reassurance that Jesus has you firmly in his grip. I want to look at fear from the past, fear in the present and fear in the future. Let me see in this passage in a few different ways and then to land on a mini, very mini teach on the fear of the Lord as the only fear that should be ruminating in our souls from this day forward. I hope that sounds good. So firstly, if we look at fear from the past, the very first verse, just like Pete's talk the week before, gives us something to focus on. Severe famine that's impacting even Jacob and his family. Here's the Egypt will bring the solution and he shares this with his sons. Now the words Egypt are going to be a trigger for the sons, so much so that Jacob notices something but can't form any reasoning around it. He says, why do you just keep looking at each other? The fear of being found out of their treatment of Joseph, the fear of past actions, the fear and shame that flows through their veins every time Joseph is mentioned and every time that place Egypt is spoke of. They know and live in this constant fear of everything coming crashing down in front of them should Jacob, their father, find out. The fear from the past is very real in their present and it's impacting their future. Fear can do that. It crosses all tenses. It knows no boundaries or restrictions should we allow it. Now, obviously, the brothers have committed 
really awful treatment of their brother and deceit of their father. But it's a reminder, this little uh, verse or two, it's a reminder of the sheer power and control that fear can get if we give it space and we give it room to breathe, if it becomes our native air. For things that we've done wrong in the past, but also things maybe that we've lived through in the past that are very much alive in our present and impact our future. For me and my story, I can think of two stories. The first one, I remember being in primary two and being taken out of class and all of a sudden me and my family were all in a police escort on our way to the airport. My grandfather had been killed during the troubles in Northern Ireland. I was really young to fully understand what was going on, but as I got older, I could see the impact around me. And I remember as a kid, I would check under before my parents or my granny would come out to the car. I would check under all the cars before to check for explosive devices. And actually reflecting on it, I'm so aware now how fear had really gripped my my wee heart as I grew up. And I couldn't articulate it or name it at the time. As a young teenager, I'd get uh, the Stena Line rail and sail to Northern Ireland to spend summers with my wonderful granny. And every time, even as a lanky 13-year-old in the mornings, in the mornings, every morning, she would say, Oh, Thomas, I slept so well knowing that you were in the house. I didn't need to put the alarm on. And it actually breaks my heart to think of the fear that she lived in in those evenings by herself. Fear is a thief. It's a thief. Second story I can think of is being in Aberdeen. We lived in Aberdeen for 11 years. Maybe it was longer. I can't remember. It's around that. And we used to have a wee Renault Clio. It was our first car. And I was turning out of the street. I was. It was a Friday afternoon. I was on my way to Seven Aside Football. I was the chaplain at a local high school. And I would gather some friends and play the teachers every Friday afternoon. And as I turned out of this street, a motorbike slammed into the side of my car. It was a split second. It was a minor bump, but fear grabbed it and grew it. You ever had that after a moment of shock where fear grabs it and grows it? I remember being on the road, shaking and getting a breath test and people asking me if I was okay. The police arriving, parked up my car. There was a wee dent on it. The guy was okay. And I paced back to the church office and I found Mark, who was the operations manager at the time, and I just collapsed into his arms and cried for quite a long time. The adrenaline settled, and he said, right, let's get back on the road. Maybe that's a word as you're listening. Just get back on the road. I drive home. Uh, he says, let's drive home. I'm coming with you. And I drove home, but I suffered terrible anxiety of having another accident. Not only that, but just anxiety and worry about everything. Worst case scenario stuff. Fear had set up camp and was multiplying. And it was tiring. Then one night at a youth festival, about probably about a year later, I had the most amazing time in worship. where It felt like God was healing and slowing down my heart. It was like that game Operation. He was just being so specific. And following that moment, my driving anxiety, I believe, was healed. And don't get me wrong, I still have wee anxiety hiccups in my uh, day-to-day life, but I'm determined, determined to speak truth and send irrational fear packing and not to let worst-case thinking and scenario living to rule. 
I wonder if there's a few that listen are listening and think of worst case thinking and scenario living ruling their lives. The root of that is fear. We are to be people of faith. Faith is our native air. Maybe fear is set up camp. Maybe fear of people knowing the real you terrifies you. Maybe fear resulting of a trauma is a very real thing that's just clicked as I've spoken. Can I encourage us to start the conversation with Jesus, with trusted friends and to take the right avenues to choose faith and life and future this morning? It might be we pursue professional help to uh, release what we've been bound by. And, you know, Jesus won't let us down in those steps. So we pray fear from the past to be gone. Secondly, we have fear in the present. As a continuation, we see fear for Jacob in the passage in verse 4. He's told the brothers about the grain and the need to go to Egypt because they need food. And in verse 4 it says, but Jacob did not send Benjamin. So Joseph's brother with the others, he didn't send them. He didn't send Benjamin because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So 20 years have passed for Jacob since he lost Joseph. And Jacob lived in constant fear that he'd also lose Benjamin. So the very protective nature that Jacob so unhealthily led the family towards Joseph at the very beginning of the the Joseph story in Genesis was now being redirected to Benjamin, albeit under very different circumstances. Benjamin, you stay here. Benjamin, you're not going there. Benjamin, don't do that. Benjamin, you won't go there. Stay close. You can imagine it, can't you? Benjamin being smothered by his father's fear. I've highlighted this because as a parent, I see the dangers here and I see how fear can be a ruler in this very complicated and challenging world and culture that we know and live in. It's a minefield. And I've had many conversations with parents who just worry, who worry that the world of the world that our children will be brought up in and are being brought up in the secular pressures and the decline of Christianity in our nation and the very real danger in all the challenges and opposition as Jesus followers is we don't raise children of promise, but we raise children of slavery. That We don't raise children of faith, but we raise children of fear. That we don't equip and teach our children the way that they should go and release them when the time is right, but we shield and protect and they don't have the equipping to stand strong when adversity comes. So this is a word particularly for parents and those that are in and around our young people. Be parents of faith, be people of faith, be resolute in opening the word. Pray together in every available opportunity. Let Jesus be the echo of the household. Pray for the big, but also pray for the little. Pray for the lost phone or the lost TV remote. Pray for the everyday as a family. Mary's parents have really taught me that. Invite Jesus into every trial and every joy. Give thanks and give it to him real with the family. We don't have to fear, but we do have a responsibility. It's not going to be easy. I know that. And we haven't even reached teens with our children. But I know that uh, fear grips our every day. And a lot of that has to do with that is our phones. Missing out, not keeping up, fear of rejection. The crippling fear of comparison. I know that when I manage my usage with my phone, I manage better and I hear better from the Lord. I want to encourage us. Well done, parents. Well done, those friends and role models for our young people. Keep on keeping on. We pray fear of the present be gone. And then we have fear of the future. So I've kind of touched upon it a little bit. 
if I want to share a story of uh, me being at university, my first night at university, I've never, I'd never been, I went to Stirling Uni to study business uh, and French and German. I wanted to be an interpreter and that didn't quite pan out, as you can tell. But uh, I remember my first night in Stirling University. I'd never been properly in an environment before uh, so so filled with alcohol and partying and it terrified me. I'd just turned 18 I went home early and into my little dorm room at the halls and I cried a bucket load thinking, what on earth is this my life now? And actually at that time I kept a diary. I know I'm full of surprises and I found it a couple of years ago and I, following that first night I got sucked into the party lifestyle and found confidence in it. But I'd get home in my drunken state and I'd write prayers how I needed God, saying sorry, but also just praying over my life. Where am I headed? And it was quite profound a couple of years ago to see God in those seasons where I thought of myself so distant, but God was so up close. It was like what Pete said, he's right there. In every season, he's invested in us. He isn't going anywhere in spite of where we are at, but sometimes we just can't see it. It's a bit like the brothers in this passage. They get given their grain. Joseph knows them right away. They don't recognise him. He uses an interpreter to hide further. He sends them on their way, holding one of the brothers and asking them to take Benjamin back. They return with the grain, but also with the money in the bags and enough to travel with. Verse 35 uh, says, As they were emptying their sacks there, and each man's sack was the pouch of silver. And when the father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. They were frightened. They're like, not this as well. What's happening? Fear of the future was so real. Because of their fear, they couldn't see the providence. They couldn't see the provision. They're thinking, what will happen next? We're accused of spies. We'll get found out. They're under such bondage, they can't see. Fear has them in its grip. The unknown, the ahead. But they couldn't see God moving. And I still have moments, I'm sure we all do, fear of what's next and where we let that dominate and we have a clouded view and then we can't see God moving, we can't see God providing, where fear has maybe robbed us of joy of the Lord's hand and Lord's protection. Where have we let what if win the day and lose perspective of what God's actually doing? So we pray fear of the future to be gone I always remember the quote, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Let that be a a line that just rings true in our day-to-day lives as we try uh, to follow Jesus as best we can. And then finally, I just want to land on the fear of God. In chapter, in verse 18 of chapter 42, we read Joseph instructing his brothers and he says, at the end, do this and you will live for I fear God. The fear of God. What's all that about? Well, it's not the same thing as being afraid of the Lord. It's to convey a sense of awe and wonder and delight and loving your beloved so much that you'd be afraid to hurt him. I was at an event, a vineyard event, a number of years ago called Cause to Live For for 20s and 30s down in Nottingham. Mary and I were there. And a brilliant Bible teacher, Simon Ponsonby, was speaking on the fear of the Lord. And he spoke about Tim Keller's autobiography. 
uh, and he, he was speaking about Christopher Lee who plays Sauron in the Lord of the Rings movies and he is obsessed with Tolkien Christopher Lee was obsessed with Tolkien and then one time he met him and when he met him he said it just felt like kneeling he just felt like kneeling there was an awe an adoration and I think that's what it is I think that's what the fear of the Lord is wanting to kneel wanting to honour I remember my first Rangers game <laughs> it was a European night it was Dynamo Moscow in the UEFA Cup I think it was it was the year 2000 or 2001 and Michael Ball had a free kick I'm 16 years old something like that it's a well it wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been 16 if it, oh no I would have it was 2000 or 2001 50,000 people in the stadium and he scores this free kick and that noise the people jumping up and down, the ground was reverberating around me. It was shaking. The stand was moving. It was massive. And I just felt so small. My heart was pounding. I could hardly breathe. In that moment, my first experience of uh, a goal at Ibrook Stadium, I felt so small and so full of awe. I think that's a little bit what it's like. Just wow or whoa. What would our church look like if we lived from that place of surrender? From that place of awe, on our faces at his feet, ditching the rubbish that the world offers and just eating up, receiving all that God has for us. The fear of the Lord should frame our life. I believe it did with Joseph. That's why we have that verse. If it was to do the same for us, I wonder what would change. I wonder what would change. There's a song I would love you, if you're listening to this, to just uh, have a wee Google on, on YouTube or listen to it on Spotify. It's called Nothing Else by Cody Carnes. And I'd love, just wherever you are, you ever, wherever you are, just to put that song on. I think it's about nine minutes. And just listen to the words. And my prayer is, as I've closed this talk, that you would just know Jesus' love and that you would live in faith and not fear.